Once again, good morning. We are very, very glad you're here. And if I can say on my own personal note, uh, if you're visiting with us today, whether from in town, out of town, uh, campus, or the community here at large, we're really glad you're here. And we want to thank you for coming and trusting us with your heart and your time this morning. And obviously, I hope the experience for you is of such a nature. You want to come back and be with us because we, we would like for you to. So thank you for coming. Um, before I launch into things, uh, uh, I'm sure uh, if you're like me, you forget uh, when people are leaving when they're coming back. And I wanted to make special note uh, that Tom, of course, uh, uh, is in Korea doing mission work. He arrives back Tuesday. So uh, we are continuing to pray for his arrival. And uh, we'll look forward to having him back uh, here uh, later on this week. I hope you got an outline as you uh, came in this morning. If it helps you to fill it out, you'll find certain things in the PowerPoint and words underlined. That'll help cue you in, and I'll do my best to help cue you in as well. And uh, if that helps, go ahead and do that. Well, I I guess uh, most of you uh, got the email that I sent out, and uh, your minds were prepared for this rather uh, uh, startling moment. That is that after 51 solid sermon stretching over five years, uh, I have finally released the Gospel of Mark. And, um, of course, I I don't have any regrets about doing that. Uh, Looking up close and and personal at the life of Jesus is without question the most important thing that we as believers can do. After all, that's who we follow. And I am certain that the Gospels were designed by God to be the primary focus of our, our, of our study and faith. And although I find, uh, what word should I use, parting with the Gospel of Mark to be difficult, and I do, I am excited to approach a new study. Now, over the Christmas break, I zeroed in on and began preparing for what I would like to uh, tackle next, and I say that humbly. Uh, and I wanted this study to be completely practical, uh, extremely down-to-earth, and uh, a way of taking the life of Jesus and somehow convincing our hearts that Jesus is not just to be adored, he's to be lived out. And I can't think of a study that's more rubber beats the road than where we're going to go this morning. Uh, I want to begin by telling you a story about two men who are in conversation and does not necessarily funny, but it certainly draws me to the point I want to draw you into this morning. One guy was uh, walking by a friend that he hadn't seen in a while. He says, look, I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, what you've been up to? And he said, well, I've uh, been taking a first aid course. I wanted to kind of be prepared to maybe handle crisis that comes and be able to help out with people. And uh, I just received my certificate uh, back a month or so ago. And uh, the man said, well, that's great. Has it come in handy? He says, well, as a matter of fact, it has. I was driving uh, the other day and came upon a real serious wreck. There were bodies on the ground. There was a lot of blood. And I mean, it almost got the best of me. And uh, he says, well, did your training help you? And he says, well, it sure did. At first, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then I remembered what I'd learned. So I sat down, put my head between my legs, and I didn't faint. And the moral of the story is, it's easy to be filled with knowledge about things that we never actually put to use for the things in which they're intended. 
And I wonder how many people who are not Christians look at us and view us who, you know, are Christians that way. That is, on the top of your outlines, Christians are full of beliefs that they never use. Well, there is a book in the New Testament for all the people who wonder if religion is supposed to make a difference. And, of course, I, in the email, if you read it, I left it somewhat of a mystery. I hope you figured it out. That's the letter of James. James's word to us as we begin, it's time to be real. Now, I guess first things first. The letter begins this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Obvious question. Who's James? Well, you might already know, but there was more than one, and I hear people getting confused on this all the time. I do, if I don't stop to think about it. He is the eldest son of Mary and Joseph, which, by the way, actually made him the half-brother of Jesus. Not a bad pedigree. And, of course, he became very influential in the early church. In fact, when Jesus raised from the dead... We're told that he singled out some specific people to go visit. And one of the people that he specifically named that he wanted to see was James. And, of course, that moment radically changed his life. You'll remember that throughout Jesus' ministry, that his whole family, including his brothers, were very skeptical and even sarcastic about Jesus' claims. But that one resurrection appearance changed Everything. And as we're told in the letter to Galatians, James became, it says, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And he ended up playing some rather crucial roles in the, you know, the the infant church as it was beginning to, you know, kind of get started and figure things out. And one of the biggest questions facing the early church is the basically the question, is this new faith for Jews only, or do the Gentiles get in on this thing? And the players, of course, who forged a response to that dilemma were who? Paul and James. And I'll tell you, we do not fully grasp the the courage and integrity of this guy that we're reading here as he stood that moment. And for the remainder of his life, while Paul was working among the Gentiles, it was James who became a leading voice of reason and courage among the Jewish Christians. James was a leader in that church uh, that we understand traditionally until around 62 AD when he was killed because he believed. We understand he was taken on up into one of the walls there in Jerusalem, thrown off, and in his uh, uh, handicapped state, immediately was stoned to death. I think if you talk to him today, he would say, I have no regrets. And he wants to talk to us about this. And of course, if you understand James and you begin to understand what he means when he addresses, uh, you know, to the 12 tribes scattered uh, there in, in, uh, uh, in Jerusalem. 
Of course, when you're, you hear that phrase, 12 tribes, uh, what do you naturally think about? You think about Israel. Here, more specifically, of course, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And if you understand this letter, it's really one of the most Jewish letters, uh, books in the New Testament. And so among, uh, you know, so what James is doing here is writing to Jewish Christians, uh, people who have converted to Jesus, who have had to leave Jerusalem where James was their shepherd. If you remember back in Acts chapter 8, immediately following the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, a severe persecution broke out. The Jewish Christians in mass fled from Jerusalem uh, as fugitives. And these people ended up scattering all over the Mediterranean world. And James never lost, you see, that sense of uh, responsibility and that heart of love for these people. For all those people who were going through all of those difficult times. And so, in essence, I, I would... I think of it almost as a survival manual for those who are going through those tough times. Now, I want you to know that there is never an easy time to be a Christian. But I want you to stop and think with me for just a moment what it was like for them back then. If you were a Jew, you were socially hated by just about everyone else that was not a Jew. And if you were a Christian... You were ostracized by anyone who was a Jew because you were considered an enemy of God. So if you were a Jewish Christian, just work out the equation. You were literally a man without a country. You had to to, to leave your homes, your jobs, your loved ones just to save your lives. I mean, violently uprooted. And nobody wants you. So these are hard times. And it's times like this that James says you need to put your faith to work because when times get hard, that's when we start complaining and coveting and showing partiality and cursing and fighting and judging, and maybe we just give up. So James says with love in his heart, if you say you believe like you should, then why are you living like you shouldn't? James knows that if our faith is going to survive the challenges in this world, our faith has to be made real. And the only way we do that is, in essence, to aerobicize it. And so to James, it boils down to this. Faith is denied if it makes no difference in everyday living. On your outline, James isn't interested simply in the declaration of your faith. He is interested in the demonstration of your faith. In fact, he raises a very disturbing question in James, in his letter. He said, did you know that demons have impeccable theology? He says, there's not a person sitting in this room that if you were to take an orthodoxy test would score higher than a demon. Religion is intended to be more than simply kind of storing up theological positions and beliefs that are never put to use. The litmus test for James is this. Does what you believe affect how you live and behave every day? In fact, I think the key verse in James is found in chapter 2. And look at it with me when he says, Dear brothers, what is the use of saying that you have faith if you aren't proving it by your actions? To James, faith reveals itself especially... At hard times. 
those who are a little bit older will know uh, and remember Charles Colson. Colson was a chief advisor in the Nixon administration, and he went to prison as a result of the Watergate scandal that took place back in the early 1970s. Back, matter of fact, you know, the new movie, The Nixon Frost, is uh, chronicles some of the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. That's kind of what that's about. I haven't seen it yet. Want to? Well, when, while he was in prison, he found the Lord Jesus Christ. And since his release from prison in 1975, he has proven the sincerity of his jailhouse conversion. He has entered onto the scene nationally and internationally and in bringing about faith-based uh, reforms to prison systems all over the world, including the United States. And also becoming one of the most profound uh, Christian apologists to our culture. Well, on one occasion, he was invited to uh, be part of a television uh, national news program. But what he didn't know is that this program was a setup with the intentions of confronting him with the hypocrisy of Christianity in America. And so after he came out and they introduced him, they made him listen to a taped conversation of two Christian leaders who were obviously talking about a very deep sin. I mean, it was really scandalous. And what they were trying to spring on Colson was, just look at how many Christian hypocrites there are. So what leg do you stand on trying to convince us who are not Christians to become Christians? It's a good question. And at that, Colson looked the camera in the eye and he says, why is it that all of you media people, only thing you focus on are the scandals? Are there sinners in the church? Of course there are. But there are also 350,000 local churches in America that are clothing the poor, that are feeding the hungry, that are working inside inner city ministries, that are taking the lead in rescue uh, operations all over the globe, that have missionaries living in places that you wouldn't even think about living in. Why don't you talk about these people? That's the church in action. And here's what Colson was saying. He says that the only, but he's basically, the only answer we have when all the world wants to do is point out all the religious phonies is to show what happens when faith hits the streets. You see, the world can skirt around us if all we do is rely upon our orthodoxy. But when we show the difference it makes when we get outside of our church buildings, the world cannot so easily dismiss us then, can they? James knows that faith is going to be tried through the struggles of life, but he also knows that when faith is really tried, it works. And so what I would like to do for the remainder of my time this morning, briefly, uh, is to walk you, since this is somewhat of an introductory thing, to walk you down kind of the smorgasbord of James and take some samples from each chapter and let you see what happens when faith hits the streets. And so we come to chapter 1. 
Here we're going to learn that faith proves itself when it contends with difficulties and trials. Dealing with troubles is not an elective for Christians. It is a required course. And so James offers a very peculiar and unexpected perspective here, and that is the tough times are to be met with joy of all things. You see, trials put our faith on the witness stand so that those who we work with and our neighbors and our family members can see what we really believe. And while most of the world is cynical and, 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 and pessimistic and full of despair and even hatred, James tells us there's something that places all of that in check. It's called faith. And how does faith do this? Well, we'll certainly talk in detail later. But he says, first of all, James tells us that when troubles come, God will take those very moments and shape us so that after the troubles are over, we're a lot more like Jesus afterwards than we were beforehand. Second of all, we're assured that when we're in the fires of difficulties, God has got his hands on the thermometer or on the thermostat. Third, that when we're struggling, God is eager to give us wisdom. So that when we're in the midst of all the struggles, we can make some good decisions in the process. And finally, James reminds us that the temporary things that we're struggling through now are going to be swallowed up by the eternal later on. Now, it's one thing to acknowledge those things. It's another thing altogether to set them in motion. A story is told about a man who, uh, during the Great Depression, uh, lost his farm. Shortly after that, his wife died. And everything he cares about is gone, and all he has to cling on to is his faith. And he's about to lose that. And one day he had driven into town, and he uh, noticed that uh, there was a group of men building a stone church. And as he walked by, he noticed specifically that there was one uh, person that was uh, chiseling away uh, at a triangular piece of rock. And so he stopped and he asked this man, he says, what are you doing? And the stonemason pointed to the top of the steeple and he said, you see that hole up there? He goes, well, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. And that farmer knew that at that moment God had spoken to him. James wants to encourage us with the understanding that this is what God is doing with each of us right now. Now, at this moment in our lives, on your outline, God is shaping us down here so that we'll fit up there. And when nothing in your life seems to be working, faith will. Take that one to the streets. Second chapter. Faith is proven by how we treat people. Because when times get hard, it becomes a breeding ground for two things, doesn't it? Partiality and prejudice. In James's day, when more than 90% of those who lived on the face of that earth would have qualified as poor... It was a great temptation for the wealthy to use the church for social climbing. 
It's not too unlike today. And one of the reasons people around the world view Christians as hypocrites is that through the centuries, if you read and pay attention outside of our bubble, is that they've seen us treat people that we deem beneath us with contempt. The story is told about Gandhi when he was a college student himself in South Africa. And while there, he began to read the New Testament and actually became enamored with the teachings of Jesus. And in his search for uh, answers, he went to a a, a church building there and uh, so he could talk to a minister. And when he arrived at the doors, he was met at the door by an usher uh, that that, that, uh, uh, halted him. And he says, you can't come into this church. There are churches for people your color elsewhere. And later on, Gandhi would write in his own biography, so I decided right then and there that if Christianity had caste differences too, I might as well just stay a Hindu. I've always wondered the impact he would have made if he could have talked for Jesus. In fact, if you pay attention, every sin that James confronts in his letter are the sins that have to do the things that tear you and I apart, community. James tells us on your outlines that the way we treat people tells us what we really believe about God. And any place where all people matter is where faith reigns. Let's take that one to the street. Chapter 3. Faith is proven by what we talk about, what we communicate. Because hard times produce harsh words. If you're a country music singer, you'll probably know the song by Randy Travis. I think it's entitled Valley of Pain. Some of the lyrics are simply this. When I'm hurting, well, he already says hurting. (laughs) I have a dangerous tongue. I lose it, and then I use it like a gun. As my children were growing up, like a lot of you, parents, uh, I coached for several years park and rec, uh, softball, and basketball. And um, the best part was what? The kids. The worst part, at times, was the parents. Now, of course, I encourage parents to be the cheerleaders from the sideline. You know, I welcome as I would put it, and I'd give them emails, and I'd talk to them, you know, active participation, you know, and, and uh, letting the kids know that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, go at it and enjoy. And, uh, but, you know, let them compete, will you please? And, um, but sometimes that active participation got ugly. And I could cite more than my fair share of examples of this, but there was one game uh, when a mother from one of the other, on the other team, who, by the way, was wearing a Christian T-shirt. You see where this is going? I mean, it clearly promoted Jesus. And she began writing the ref on every single call he made. And she not only got out of hand, literally screaming at everybody on the court, uh, she obviously didn't, she really didn't know what the, the rules were. 
And there was one call that she made where she just got livid. And she screamed, that's wrong! How can that be? You can't make a call like that! How can that be? Well, the ref, who, by the way, happened to be uh, a former starter for the Auburn University basketball team. <clears throat> he was also Mr. Kentucky for Auburn, Auburn University basketball when he, when he played at high school in Kentucky. Made the mistake of thinking she actually wanted an answer. <laughs> and so he walked over to her at halftime and tried to explain to her. Now, mind you, this is a middle-aged woman with a Jesus, Jesus, Jesus t-shirt on. And I couldn't hear the whole thing, but I uh, did hear her tell the ref, I'll say whatever I want. And I thought at that moment, if I were not already a Christian, she would have just made it ten times harder for me to ever want to become one. On your outlines, it's possible to shatter our Christian facade by simply opening our mouths. And that's why this is uh, for free, but, you know, in Colossians, I think Paul says around chapter, beginning of chapter 4, he says, you know when you're talking with outsiders, season your conversation with salt and grace. Talk in a way that makes them thirsty for Jesus. How about taking that one to the streets? Chapter 4. Faith is displayed by the way we contain our pride. Those of you who are older remember the John Lennon song about four four decades ago, just give peace a try, just give peace a chance. And we've been trying. But it still doesn't seem to be working, does it? And I'll tell you why. Because there's well over 6 billion, specifically about 6,700,000,000 wills on this planet. All of them wanting what they want. And of course, sooner or later, it's bound to come into conflict. Reminds me of the story of Abraham Lincoln. He was walking down the streets one day with his two boys. I understand this is not fable, but actual. You know, he had four children. Only one lived to adulthood. So he went through some tough times himself. One died while he was in office. This is when two of the boys, Willie and Tad, were very young. And they were walking down the streets, and the kids were fussing and griping and whining. And someone walking by stopped them and said, Mr. President, what's, what's the matter with your two boys? And his response is, well, the same thing that's the matter with the whole world. I've got three walnuts in my hands, and each boy wants two. And so James reminds us that our faith is working when we stop always pushing for our own personal agendas and start giving heaven's agenda a chance. You see on your outline, there's going to be peace when there's just one will that we really care about. 
Let's take that one to the streets. And finally, chapter 5. Faith is proven by how we pray. You see, faith has to really work when you receive a not yet from God, doesn't it? One of James's favorite words you'll find in his letter is the word uh, maturity or mature. You know, grow up. And one of the problems with children, am I right, is that they don't understand not yet. Children think not yet means never. Now, James reminds us that Jesus is is indeed coming back, and so the time is coming when all of our troubles are going to be over, but Jesus hasn't come yet. And so we're just going to have to keep being patient and keep praying. A farmer doesn't go out and put some seeds into the ground and then come back the very next day and panic. There's no harvest. The farmer knows that he's got to be patient. And so James points us to two guys in the Old Testament, well-known. problem is we don't actually stand, pause to think about what it is they did that we ought to pay attention to. So James says, let me tell you, one is Job. Job went through some tough times, and he never understood why. But he never let go of God. Never. And then there's Elijah. He had to live as a fugitive under God's, you know, witness protection program. You know why he was a fugitive? Because he did precisely what God told him to do. And he had to do that for three and a half years while he was praying for God to send a revival. After three and a half years, finally he came. And James tells us, be like those people. Admiral Robert Perry, does that name sound familiar to you? Second, third, fourth grade history, maybe. He's accredited as being the first person to reach the North Pole. And if you know his story, you know he didn't make it on the first try. It took him over 20 years to get there. In fact, the Eskimos said of him, man, you're like the sun. You come back every year. He went through financial problems. He went through physical, bodily uh, uh, problems. He went through struggles with the elements and nature. I mean, everything worked against him. But he said, for 24 years, I was obsessed with one thing, and that was putting the stars and stripes on the North Pole. And so here, James has something to stake in our heart. There in your outline is this. Listen, ministry is the reward we receive when we persevere in prayer. Let's take that one to the streets. When faith is applied, religion gets real.
what you believe about God and the Lord Jesus Christ is intended to be put to use. You know, people, we do live in tough times. Times when people of faith can make a powerful testimony to a very cynical world. So I guess this is as good a time as any to remember in the bottom of your outlines. Real faith works in real life. Maybe you need to give it a try. Perhaps faith is calling you today to make Jesus real in your life. Confessing, listen to me here. Just confess your trust in Jesus. And then you can actually, it uses this phraseology of clothing ourselves. You actually let Jesus cover your life in baptism. Or perhaps your faith is calling you to share your burdens with one of our shepherds and have them pray for you. You notice they make their way to the back of the foyer as we close. It's not a holy parade. It's a movement toward an anticipation that you might tap on their shoulders and says, I like something, I have something I'd like to share with you, and could we maybe go off to a private room and talk together and pray together? They await your arrival. And if that helps you this morning, either one, please feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.